episode 672 of Longbox Heroes, the Lamborghini of Comic Book Podcasts. I'm Todd, along with Joe. How are we doing today, Joe? I'm a healthy distance away from my mic, and I'm going to be as uh, cognizant as I can not to be loud to keep uh, my voice below 150 decibels. Wink. Ah, good, good, because my ears were starting to bleed yeah. as we recorded this, so... You don't you don't realize like I don't you know I, I go back and I spot edit the show um you know when I'm doing whatever I'm doing um but I listened back to the soon to be soon to be named network draft picks thing right and I felt as though I was like right on top of the mic and I might have been like blowing people out I don't think Adam ran anything through a levelator or anything like that when he posted it up. Good luck to everybody in the draft. Right. I hope everyone ties for first. (laughs) I hope everybody ties for last, but yeah, but like I said, I'm just trying to do something a little bit different here. Um, in the hopes that I'm not too overpowering today. No, not you. I can't smell you through the microphone. So. Oh my goodness! I'm I I'm mindful of that sort of stuff. No, I get I you. I get you. Yeah. I I care very little, but either yeah. way, I care enough for the both of us. That's what it is. Yes. Uh, Joe, would you like to know what's on the show this week? I would. Uh, very small news, um, and sadly, a it's uh, a creator's health troubles. Um, other than that, it's a slender read of a week. Um, conventions. What we read last week, which was uh, Batman, Superman, World's Finest 18, and uh, Daredevil 14. What we're looking forward to this week, and the return of the preview review? Wow. Yes, Um, indeed. Todd and Joe have issues where we're rereading the entire run of Sandman and all the the tie-in issues. Uh, And this week is Sandman 61 and 62 from The Kindly Ones. Um, And finally... Spoiler-filled talk of uh, this week's Blue Beetle movie that came out, Joe. And I can't wait for all your nitpicks. I can't wait. You want to get it out of the way now? <laughs> no, wait till the end. That's where no. the spoiler-filled talk goes. It is going to be spoiler-filled talk, right? Right. Um, so, hey, before we uh, dive into the main show again, of course, since we have a, a slender read of news... Um, I was starting to look at what our options are for next year if we decide to do Todd and Joe have issues. I saw the why the last man talk already. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because like it's a you know it's a complete it's a concise it's a heralded thing. Um, we watched the TV show. Remember when there was a why the last man TV show for a hot minute? Yeah, yeah, for a hot minute. Um, you know what one's gonna be well. There's a lot of them that could be difficult, okay? Yeah, well, you want I still want to re- review, uh, not review, but discuss Preacher on this uh, family-friendly show. I think we could do it. I really do. Uh, I don't know. You'd be you'd be like, uh, 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 to me too many times. Mm. I, I, I have faith in you um, that if there's anything that's in there, I'll just do the Jay Leno, Neil Patrick Harris thing. Where if you go off kilter or something, right? I'll just very quietly give a dead air five seconds. Okay. So I can go and clean it up and post, you know? Right. But now I'm aware of that dead air five seconds. But either way. Will you be aware of that if we do decide to do Preacher and start that four months from now? 
I'm tripping you up. I have a memory for that. But no, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but we can always do cross, too, again, if you want. No. But any. No. But anyway. All right. Uh, so it came out this week, uh, over the weekend, that, uh, you know, famous, you know, comic book creator Jeff Smith, uh, most notably of the indie hit from, you know, back in the 90s. We're talking about it all the time on Previewing the Past, Bone, mm-hmm. uh, amongst other works, uh, unfortunately had a uh, cardiac incident uh, on yep. Sunday. Yep. And they went ahead and they canceled all of his future appearances. He was building up, uh, doing a new book uh, that was going to be coming out later this year uh, called Tukey, not Hacka Hacka Tukey, but T-U-K-I. Um, and I think he had a Kickstarter planned um, for October that was going to be doing um, Thorn, which was the book that Bone spun out of, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like one of those books. It's like one of those very highly heralded books that I just never read. But I think if you're a comic book fan that came up in the 90s or late 80s, you knew who Jeff Smith was. It is and you knew what bone was you know yeah um i didn't i read bone i eventually did read bone but i did not read it in the 90s when it came out um I was, uh, basically i ended up reading it when the uh definitive colonel sanders artist he had all the the trades and then when they did the color versions of the trades um, they because it was in black and white originally. He bought all those, and he was just fawning off. Whenever a new copy came out, he'd be like, "Oh, here's Bone Volume One because I got the color version. Here's Bone Volume Two when it came out." So I did read it, and I know our retailer was a big fan because obviously it was an an uh, an homage to the like Ducktail comics or uh, you know the Uncle Scrooge comics and everything like that. I really thought it was good, but uh, I highly recommend it if you get a chance. But I, I feel for the man. I've been there. I understand your pain. Uh, get well, Mr. Smith. Yeah, absolutely. And Bone is definitely something that we could put on that list as we're talking about stuff to read for next year. It's only 55 issues. Right. It's very easily accessible. It's everywhere, you know. Right. And uh-huh. I think it has a couple of miniseries too. Okay. So, I mean, it would be close to, to – that's the only other thing I think. There is like a – I forget, like a Dragon miniseries or something. But either way, it's close to 52 issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, we have a we have a list of things that we could do, but you know, our, our condolences go to fr- uh, Jeff Smith, friends, families, listeners, etc. Hopefully, a speedy recovery. Uh, any sort of instance like this is no good for no no matter who you are. But obviously, he had to cancel a bunch of appearances, and that really stinks too for yep. him. Um, you know, because I'm sure he made a lot of money off those, and I'm sure there were fans that were looking forward to meeting him as well. Right. Um, so that's really all we got in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm looking here, we do have, speaking of conventions, there are a couple big conventions going on this weekend. Uh, we have Fan Expo Canada in beautiful Toronto, Canada. Um, do we still make the joke that there's only one of these that makes any money and all of the other ones stink? See, I don't know what the Canada one because I don't know what the what the money trade. You know what I mean? What it uh, the, the conversion is. So maybe you do make money in Canada. Well, I know two dollars American is two seventy nine Canadian. Right. I don't know how many loonies go into yeah. George Washington. 
Right. I have a friend in Minnesota that told me that. So, mm-hmm. uh, But Fan Expo Canada, it's a big one. There's a lot of people here. Um, comic book folks, Frank Miller, Joe Casada, Andy Kubert, Dan Slott, Jason Fabok, Steve McNiven, Zeb Wells, Wes Craig, Tom Grummet, Leonard Kirk. And then on the media guest side, you got like the Daredevil Netflix show experience that's been going on uh, quite a bit. With uh, Charlie Cox, John Barenthal, and Vincent D'Onofrio. You got the uh, vacation folks that are going around. Now, I will notice, you know, there were some conventions that had everyone that was still alive from the first movie. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Imogene Coco. Um, but, like, sometimes it would just be, like, your principals. Like, Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Randy Quaid. And right. then you'd see... Uh, Christy Brinkley, and then you'd see Anthony Michael Hall and whoever played the daughter, right? Mm-hmm. This time around, you got Christy Brinkley, you got Anthony Michael Hall, you ain't got the daughter, and you ain't got Randy Quaid. I'm just yeah. saying. Just say, so, well, it's, it's availability, that's all. Sure, sure, I'm sure he's busy that weekend, probably has no problems traveling out of the country. Um... But also, there is going to be Hayden Christensen, the one true Darth Vader. Uh, Jason Lee, the one true uh, Brody Bruce. And uh, Christina Ricci, the one true Mrs. Todd Roker. I was just going to say, <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of Christina Ricci, respectively. Respectfully, yes. Respectfully. Oh, man, messed it up. And then uh, in Colorado Springs, we have the Colorado Springs Comic Con. Again, a nice mix of folks here. Uh, Adam Hughes, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, uh, Christopher Priest, Mike Barron, Simon Bisley. And then on the media side of things, um, Bruce Campbell's going to be there. Elvira's going to be there. Ed Begley Jr. is going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Farr is going to be there. Bill Shatner's going to be there. And star of the uh, Wonder Woman pilot from 2011, Carrie Elwes, is going to be there as well. Right. Ask them all questions about that if you're going to nothing yes. else. Yes. R- really prove yourself to be an Elway's head, right? Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you only about Saw and that pilot that no one saw. I'm always Elway's, so mm. that's my motto. Now, one thing that I want to point out here that I found interesting, just looking at the um, the prices for a lot of the media, or the yeah, the media guests, right, for the meet and greet stuff. Right. Uh, I am shocked, shocked how low the Bruce Campbell uh, meet and greet price is. People are starting to wise up. That's all. No, that's not what it is at all. Right. How dare you? Like the just as an example. Right. Um, The Elvira one is um, $80 for an autograph, $100 if it's on a Funko Pop. And the photo op is 95 bucks, right? Right. Uh, just throwing that out there, because, like, eh, like I'd get an Elvira one if she was in the full gimmick, right? I doubt she will be, but yeah. But again, you know, if she's in the full gimmick, I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's go. Um, William Shatner, you know, of course, big top dog, big convention guy, whatever. Uh, he is... $120 for an autograph, 135 for the photo, right? Right. Bruce Campbell, 50 bucks for the photo, 55 for the autograph. Right. I'd say that's a that's a steal. 
Uh, yeah, I would say it's a steal, too. They're, he's stealing your money. How dare you? Come on. That's all. Kerry Elwes is charging more for his photo than Bruce Campbell is. As he should be. Carl, uh, the little boy from Walking Dead, is charging more for his photo than Bruce Campbell is. Tom Welling from Smallville, more. Uh, Dean Kane, more. Uh, and again, I'm just saying, if you are a Bruce Campbell fan and you are in the greater Colorado area, like, 50 bucks is a steal. 55 bucks. Oh, my God. And if you're there and you can, you know, run into Katrina Law, if you could give her my number, too. <laughs> I don't know who that is. She was on Arrow as one of the Agul's. She wasn't, uh, you know, the the one, you know, I can't think of the, the main one, but she was the sister. So she was the League of Assassins. And then she was in, like, Spartacus, I believe. Um, and she was she was definitely the face of Spartacus. The face? The face. Wait, the Spartacus TV show? Yes, not the movie with Kirk Douglas. All right. I was going to say, how old is this lady? <laughs> right. Uh, but no, the links to those conventions uh, are in the show notes uh, for every one of these episodes, along with information about the soon-to-be-named network at soon-to-be-named-network.com soon to be named network.tumblr.com anytime any of the shows in the network go live of course you could find them at their individual sites however it is that you do your pod catching these days but of course one stop shop for all the shows in the soon to be named network at soon to be named network.com that includes this show of course uh longbox heroes after dark final wrestling place puzzle warriors 3 profane arguments at Odds with Wrestling, We Need Wrestling, Wings on Wings, Hayabussy, and uh, I think we're going to be getting uh, No Chance in Helmet sometime before the football season starts. I think so, but don't mm-hmm. hold me to that. I mean, that's all Marcus, the passion behind the helmet, Joe. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, thankfully, he doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> I know. That's why I do it every time. Um, and, of course... Uh, anytime any of these folks go on any other shows and they let me know that they're doing that, uh, we'll make sure to link things up so you don't miss your favorite soon-to-be-named network personalities out and about and around and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can check out some of our other friends and their to-do-ins on the internet. Uh, Go check out Mike Sterling's blog at ProgressiveRuin.com. Go check out our friend Kevin Hellion's blog over at MassedLibrary.com. Go check out Rick Williams' The Chop Shop at FreeKarateChops.StoreEnvy.com. Go check out Jason Sandberg's Jupiter at his Indiegogo. Uh, Again, it's nearing 9000 already raised for it. You could buy the whole thing a la carte with all the extras there. Uh, You can go check out Chris Runt's Battle Monsters, both... Longtime listeners of this show that did self-published comics. Uh, go check out his stuff at his website, fortressofcomicnews.com. Our good friend Davey, who has been uh, a photo boy on uh, social media of late. Oh, boy. Right. He, he, loves face- the ca- he loves the camera, and the camera loves him. Oh, my! I think the camera loves him more. Yes. Uh, but he uh, and artist Rosovia put out their own self-published comic. Uh, that you could pick up at keepercomic.bigcartel.com. And if you do not have a comic book shop in your area, or you do not have a good comic book shop in your area, 
Let our shop be your shop. Comics on the green. I have the Facebook page linked up for the shop. Anytime the new books are in, just so that you're not making the trip up and there was a delay in shipping or something. Uh, when all the new pre-orders are going to be uh, final order cut off, that sort of thing. Anytime Dave gets a new Silver Age collection that he wants to flaunt in your face, you can find it all there at the social media for the Facebook page. Uh, you could also sign up for the mail order subscription service. Get your books mailed to you weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly. And if you do, there's a chance that you'll get a sketch from our good friend Becky. I got her social media linked up as well, where you could see her art, her commissions, her process, her dealings with Secret Service, all of it. Yes. <laughs> so, Todd, let's get into what we've read from this past week. Where would you like to begin? I'm going to start with uh, the book I was looking forward to most, which is Batman Superman World's Finest, number 18, written by Mark Wade, art by Travis Moore. Um, obviously, did, you know, this takes place years ago than the, the current continuity. Um, and there's been a crime in Gotham City, and Bullock and, and Gordon are, are there, and they're kind of trying to figure it out, and they're like, we can't understand it. And it's obviously the Riddler who's been on this spree, and through a series of uh, uh, situations we find out um, <clears throat> that at the he's leaving Riddles, but in crypt, uh, Kryptonian. So, you know, they kind of put the word out and Clark ends up seeing it, realizes what it is. And now he goes to Gotham to uh, talk to James Gordon. And there's a cool bit where he comes into the office and Gordon thinks he's Batman because he hears the cape fluttering. But it isn't. So, you know, that's kind of cool. And they end up having a discussion about the psychology of, you know, the Riddler and stuff. And then... um uh, he, you know, Superman ends up finding Batman because, you know, he's got the superpowers and everything and they end up talking and this is the first meeting of them. And we get the, the bits that, you know, there's also people disappearing in Gotham and, you know, we're trying to figure out who's stealing them and how it all ties in together. Um, and then some, uh, the classic, Number two rogues gallery in the world show up. Uh, some of Batman's greatest arch enemies, uh, which is fantastic. And I like when Batman does the detective work, and he's kind of he's like kind of on the nose what he knows about Superman. He's like, okay, these are all the things I know about you just from talking to you in the last thirty seconds. Um, so he, they go they go their separate ways because Batman's not a big partner guy, but he ends up calling them to the Wayne Manor to have him interview him as Clark Kent. And that's kind of, you know, how it goes with them. Uh, they figure, you know, everything out. They're going to team up for the first time begrudgingly, even though Superman really kind of wants to team up. Um, Batman doesn't, but he'll take the help. Um, the one thing that I will say is with people disappearing and Kryptonian riddles, I kind of figured out who was working, not who, but how, uh, someone was working with the Riddler because it kind of seems kind of obvious as you go, but I don't care about that. It was a fun issue. Yeah, um, you know, it's the little things that Mark Wade puts into a book like this. I know we haven't talked about this book in a while. Um, I know we had recently talked about the first issue of the World's Finest Teen Titans book, mm -hmm. where Mark Wade could take like a classic tale, you know, which is an early meeting of Batman and Superman and put some modern spin on it and 
still play with a lot of the tropes and conventions that you would see in one of their first meetings. Um, I, you know, I, I love Batman doing the out loud sleuthing of trying mm-hmm. to figure out who Superman is. Yep. And Superman kind of no selling him a bit. Yep. You got to no sell. You know, I, I like the bit that you mentioned where Commissioner Gordon immediately thinks, oh, well, I hear the fluttering of, of a cape. It must be Batman. He's like, oh, it's Superman, right? Yep. He's Batman must be slipping. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, you never know when Batman's going to show up. It's not like we have a signal for him when we, whenever we need him. And Wait. then he's like, no, oh, that's not a bad idea. And I'm like, oh, I love those little things that Mark Wade. And that's the thing. I think. You and I being Mark Wade fans and Mark Wade being one of the best writers of the last like 30 plus years, you know, he could do stuff like that and kind of get away with it. I don't mean get away with it in a negative way, but make it feel not corny and make it not feel like, yeah, yeah. Ham fisted. Uh, Sorry. Right. Um, and obviously we knew the Riddler was involved and, you know, we talked about it last week, but friend of the show, Mark Cole, go check out his stuff at, uh, the, what's his, what's his podcast name? I forget right now. Cause he has like six different Twitter accounts. Right. I forget too. Sorry. Um, but he had sent us this whole big long thing that Mark Wade put up about explaining what the, uh, riddle means and how it gets there and how the Kryptonian works and everything else like that. Um, again, I know his stuff is uh, Odessa Steps, Winter Palace. I get them mixed up. Odessa Steps is the print, Winter Palace is the podcast, and I wanted to make sure that I had that right. So again, thank you for that, Mark, uh, Mark Cole, and Mark Wade. Um, and again, we're not going to spoil the issue, but of course, as Todd mentioned, uh, Riddler is not working alone, but I don't think he's wanting t- this partnership. Let's yeah. just say that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, this is a fun book. And, you know, if you're, you know, maybe not into whatever the current ongoing stuff in the Batman and Superman stuff is, I know Superman just, like, had a soft relaunch not six months ago. Um, I know Batman's got a big crossover getting ready to start with Catwoman uh, next week. But if that stuff doesn't really sing to you, um, Batman, Superman World's Finest is sometimes a one-shot, usually like a two- to three-issue little crossover thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a fun read if you're missing out on that sort of era of DC Comics stuff, you know? Yep. Uh, so the book I was most looking forward to coming out this week was Daredevil number 14, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Chichito. Uh, this is uh, the wrap-up of Chip Zdarsky's run on the book. Uh, you know, he is uh, still doing Batman, of course, and we just mentioned he's doing the big crossover with the Catwoman stuff. Um, but we talked before, you know, whenever somebody leaves Daredevil, they kind of foul things up for the next person coming in. And a lot of it was leading into this. And I can't talk about issue 14 without talking about like the last like two or three or four issues. And I'm not going to dwell on them all so much. Um, but there was a whole thing where there was two competing clans of hand, One was headed by the Punisher, and the other one was headed by the married couple of Daredevil and Elektra. And it got into spirituality, it got into heaven and hell stuff. Uh, That's kind of where Frank Castle has been written off in his book, and I know there's a new Punisher coming here soon in the Marvel Universe who may or may not be Frank Castle returned, but we shall see. Um, But at the end... 
Um, you know, there were casualties, there were losses. And at the end of issue 13, Matt Murdock seemingly sacrifices himself to free Foggy Nelson from hell. Oh. So that's where we pick up in issue 14. It's six months later, after the events of what we have just seen at the end of that issue. And everyone's kind of trying to put their lives back together again. Uh, Electra has returned to being the daredevil of Hell's Kitchen. Um, Foggy is continuing to her pra- the, the practice without Matt. And the two of them are not having any um, public interactions. But the both of them keep think they're seeing Matt everywhere they look. Um, obviously, because Matt has been gone and out of their life for the last six months. And there's a bit where it's you know, they, they do the thing where somebody passes them in the street. They think it's Matt. They turn back and it's a different person, you know, like that right. sort of trope. And again, I say that only as a trope, but that's, you know, a great way to convey these sort of things. Um, but a lot of the issue is focused on Electra. Um, you know, as you know, Kingpin Wilson Fisk was the mayor of New York. He banned superheroes from New York. He is no longer the mayor of New York. Luke Cage is now the mayor of New York. And the Kingpin's son, Butch, is starting to rebuild the criminal empire. After he, through most of this run, was fighting against it. Now, as this issue ends, as this run ends, he is fully entrenched in that. Electra calls him out on it. He lies to her face, but obviously she doesn't have the same radar senses like Matt Murdock does. So she mm-hmm. doesn't know that he's lying. And then we get another instance of Electra bumping into someone, passing someone in the street that reminds her of Matt. And she does the turn back and it's Matt. And it just happens to be a priest with red hair who's blind, never says his name. He says that she's familiar. And the issue ends with us not knowing, is this really Matt Murdock returned from the grave? Is Daredevil back? It's kind of left as a question mark. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting to lay things out for the next person coming in. Right. Uh, So it could be Pat Murdock, his other twin brother. Well... Um, no, so they, they uh, Mike in, in issue 13, Mike is one of the people when uh, Matt goes on the vision quest to save Foggy from hell, Mike and Karen and everyone else, every, and again to say common, but like non-superpowered person that Matt has lost in the wake of being Daredevil are all, like from his father right on down the line are all there, you know? Okay. Um, but they never say who the guy's name is. He knows who Elektra is. She's, you know, thinks it's him, but we don't know for sure. Right. Sounds intriguing. I wonder how they're going to get out of this one, Joe. I'm, I, I'm intrigued to see if this is just going to be the way that it's left here by Zadarsky. And if the new creative team is going to pick up any of these threads or just go right into something brand new, it'll be very interesting to see how that all works out. You know, I would put money. They're going to pick up on it, but you never know. Yeah. Um, But it was a really good run. Um, You know, I was going to do a whole thing where I ranked my favorite runs on Daredevil um, of all, you know, over however many years that I've been reading Daredevil. And I know Todd is going to say there's only the one, the Mark Wade one. That's true. 
Daredevil's creator, but um, I, I would say on its whole, um, the Chip Zdarsky one is not at the bottom, but it's maybe like in the top four. Oh, I thought you were going to say top five, because I know that's one of your bits. But no, that's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, um, I, mean, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Um, you know, the Bendis one is strong, but kind of falters at the end. Uh, the Brubaker one is like slam dunk from beginning to end. Uh, the Mark Wade run is really good. But if I had to pick between the Brubaker and Mark Wade ones, I picked the Brubaker one. And uh, the Chip Zdarsky one, I think he went a lot of different ways than other folks had done with the Daredevil character in quite some time. Shocked that Frank Miller isn't on there. So that's the thing. I've read the Frank Miller stuff, but I've read it like years and years after I read the, you know, the the Carl Kessel stuff, which was my first Daredevil stuff. The uh, oh, actually the mini the mini series that we talk about on Proving the Past is actually the first Daredevil stuff that I read, which was Frank Miller, John Romita Jr. doing a retelling of the origin. Right? No, I get it. Um. So. So that wasn't like pure uncut Frank Miller. No, I'm with you because I went back and read the Frank Miller run. I then this is a story I tell all the time is, you know, is when it comes to that, it's like, Oh, you read Frank Miller. I said, yeah, but I read Frank Miller's run in 1998, 2000, whatever. Yeah. And it had been ripped apart and done to death. So it was no longer fresh. It's like, right. Oh yeah, this is, this is cutting edge in 1980 whatever yeah but in 2002 i've said i've seen people have homaged this so many times i just don't care right and it's still good mm -hmm. it's it's to say that it's like watchmen is maybe putting on too high of a pedestal i was thinking the same thing but i was going to go the same place go ahead but so much of what was done in watchmen in 1986 has been done to death in 2023. If you just start picking up reading comics today, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you never read Watchmen, and then all of a sudden today you pick up Watchmen, it's going to feel old and dated and tired because you've been reading 5, 10, 15, 20 years of stuff doing this. Yep. And that's kind of like what the Frank Miller Daredevil stuff is. Like, I could recognize that this is really good stuff. And going into it with the mindset that this was the first time these sort of themes were being dealt with in a Marvel superhero comic is a pretty big deal. But, you know, by the time that I got around, you said you read it like 98, 2000s. That was probably right around the time I read it as well. I probably read it like mid-Bendis run. Right, right. And I will say about Watchmen that one of the greatest quotes in comics, I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah. Just, oh my God, so good. Like that it, itself is a meme in and of itself, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's people that have probably never read Watchmen and know that meme and don't know where it's from or the context of it or anything else like that. Right. Uh, so that's what we read uh, this past week. Let's get into what we're looking forward to coming out this week. Uh, every Tuesday around noon Eastern time, we put up the poll post which is a link to a link to all the books that are coming out this week. Whether you get your books in print, whether you get them digitally, whether you get them sent to your home, be forewarned, be forearmed, know what's coming out this week. Uh, Todd and I attempt to guess what the other is most looking forward to coming out this week. I am currently in the lead over Todd with four correct guesses. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at your list, and is the book you're looking forward to most Immortal Thor number one? 
it is Immortal Thor number one, and I think uh, that is also the book you are most looking forward to coming out this week as well. Yes, it beats Night Terrors 4 by a smidge, mm-hmm. just because it's brand new, but I do want to see how Night Terrors ends, so either way. But there is one glaring omission uh, of what we're looking forward to, and why would that be, Joe? On our well, list? just real quick before we get oh, into that. Uh, I'm with you. Same reasons for Immortal Thor. Um, I do want to see how Night Terrors end, but there is still one more book after issue four. Right, as I was calling it, the Night Terrors Omega. There you go. Um, right, so issue four is the end, but it's not the end end, right? Right. Uh, so, under normal circumstances, if you look at Todd and I's list, the book that we both definitely would have been looking forward to coming out this week would have been Marvel Unleashed number one, uh, written by friend of the show Kyle Starks, uh, with art by Jesus Hervéas. Um, but uh, we were nice enough to get a advance review copy of this book to discuss here. A screener, if you will. Yes. So for the first time in a long time, I would say almost about five or six months, uh, we are doing a preview review of a book that, as you listen to this book, is going to be available for you to pick up. Um, you don't have to wait for a week to hear us talk about it, but we're not going to spoil things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am a sucker for the Pet Avengers. Yep. Um you know, and in more recent years, I would say probably in the last, like, 15 years is when Marvel really leaned into, like, hey, we have all these animal characters. Let's do something with them. And under normal circumstances, when they would do those books, those books would be all ages, geared more toward kids, right? Not, like, babies, but, like, you know, like, under a teen level, right? Right. Tweeners, man. Right. Uh, I'm a tweener, man. Hook the leg, man. Anyway, um, this book is like, I don't know what it's rated, um, you know, because Marvel's site doesn't have the rating on there. Um, I would not guess that this is a mature reader's title. It's on the cover. It's rated T. Okay, so it is rated T, but there's like nothing like offensive in this book. Um, There's nothing like scary in this book, but the definite feel of this book reminds me a lot of other non-Marvel pet books like Dark Horse's Beasts of Burden or Vertigo's We Three. You know what it reminds of the scary wise, unlike, you know, uh, because it's not offensive. It reminds me of the worst it would probably be is Afterlife with Archie. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's not even scary. That's just like, or sad, it, there's no, like like I said, I'm even, teen to me is strong for the race, yes. you know? But go ahead, and, I agree I, with you. and I'll read the solicitation, um, it says, when Craven abdu- uh, abducts Lockjaw, at the same time, a local scientist mixed up with AIM goes missing, it's up to Throg, Red Wing, Chewy, Lucky, Bats, and the scrappy new ally D-Dog to save the day. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, obviously the way that this book is all set up and so forth, D-Dog is the star of this book. Breakout star. Breakout star of the book. Um, uh, I guess you could say that D-Dog is Demolition Man's pet. But he's not. But he's not. She's not. 
She's not she sorry. has more or less the same origin as Demolition Man. Mm-hmm. And she is the one who kind of leads this story. Yep. Um, obviously, in the original solicitation, there's discussion of an animal or two who may not make an appearance in issue one of this book. But obviously, let's get all the names out there. All the stars are here sort of thing, right? Right. Um, but you did I mention? Right. So Lucky the Pizza Dog I mentioned. Um and so even if you've never read any of these pet avenger things it, it, and listen we're we're predisposed to say these sort of things um you know Kyle is a friend Kyle has you know been on the show before and so forth but in his writing he does such a good job of fleshing out distinct and in-character personalities for each of these pets very very quickly yes very quickly and it's not one of these things, like, the only one that gets a little bit more of a backstory is D-Dog, because D-Dog is the newest character in all of this. Mm-hmm. But you know who and what and where the why of Red Wing and Chewie and Lucky and even the dog that they're helping is, you know? Yep. Um, you know, and, and I'll say, and this is one of the things that I hate a little bit, that the solicitation does give a little bit away about the book. But it's the solicitation. I don't think it ruins anything. Um, I don't think it ruins anything, but I wish they didn't tell me certain what certain people were involved with, because that's a great reveal in the book, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously there's two reveals at the end of the book of, like, what Craven really is up to and who they need to go and get assistance from. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the ongoing bit of the animals talking amongst themselves and you do the cut where they show up at like Avengers Mansion and they're talking to Jarvis and, you know, you get that part where the animals are talking and we, the reader, understand them, they understand each other and then we cut to that next panel, that next page or whatever it is and Jarvis, obviously, he doesn't understand what the animals say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love little bits like that in these sort of books and... There is, if uh, some people would say I'm history's greatest monster, I'm one of them, but go ahead. There are people that would say I am not an animal person. I am one of them. Um, there, if, if you, I'm, uh, uh, this is, and again, I would hate to say trigger warning. I would hate to say spoiler warning, but I'm giving you a heads up. If you're an animal person, especially if you're a dog person, Yep. In this issue, there's no less than two scenes Ugh. that will destroy you. Um, and it, I'm not going to spoil anything, but and they're both to me with with D Dog. Yes. Um, his origin. And man, oh man, I know the one you're talking about where he says that something would sound absolutely awful. Is that the other one? Okay. And again, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tread lightly here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to give it away because it's like such an emotional punch. Let's say there might be even three. Then how about that? Okay, because the the one with the it sounds awful, just like makes me like it's it was dusty onions in here. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll have um, to ask because I probably know what it is, but each person has one that sticks out to them the most. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It it's crazy. So, so it's when, so I'll say when D-Dog is done 
telling the other animals her secret origin. Right. And she doesn't have a home. She has a secret headquarters. And she's going to, you know, uh, be the greatest hero who ever lived, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's a panel where it like, kind of like wraps that up, you know? I get you. I get okay. you. Redog so, lost it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then the other one is when they go and they pick up Red Wing and they're on their way with finding the scent, right? Right. And um, they're and Lucky leaves them, okay? And they're talking about what happened to Lucky's eye, right? And everything that comes after that. Got it. Yes. Okay. So where you say at the end, that sounds awful. Okay, I get you. All right. So it is just those two moments. If you're a dog person, those two moments. I'm giving you a heads up. That's gonna crush you. Okay. Yep. 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 But to have this sort of emotional punch in a book essentially about the pets of your superheroes. Mm-hmm. And Red Wing's a jerk. I love that Red Wing <laughs> is a jerk. Red Wing is the guy gardener of the pet adventures. <laughs> so smug and full of himself. And we find out what uh Chew- what, what's the Miss Marvel's cat Chewy? Yep. The we find out what Chewie's full name is. Yep. Um, whether we knew that beforehand or not, we find out what D-Dog is good at and bad at. This is mm-hmm. a great book. It is. It definitely is. I was skeptical, I'm going to say, and I mean, I, I love Kyle Starks, but going on, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is just going to be a goofy pet book. And then when it ripped my heart out and made me laugh, yeah. I was like... Jeez, you know what? Never doubt Kyle Starks. And and that's the thing. All the other Pet Avengers books have been goofy pet books, you know? And then... And And and, and I'm sorry to interrupt. If if this book was a Kyle Starks goofy pet book, I'm sure it would be be great. Right. He decided to go a different way with it, and it's great. And I don't want to take away from Jesus, the artist... Man, when he makes uh, D-Dog want to look noble, that's a noble dog. When he wants to make, you know, him look sad, sad doggy. You know what I mean? Like, every, every like, just body language, because obviously, you know, they're animals, and yet it's harder to do facial expressions and stuff. But he convey like, like, Red Wing looks smug just sitting there. Like, how do you make a falcon look smug? I don't know. He does it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I like, I really want to say how well the two of them mesh in this. And that's the other thing is when you look at uh, Jesus's art, like when you go look at his social media or his Instagram or anything else like that, a majority of his art is like some of the most horrific looking monsters and atrocities <laughs> that you've ever seen in your life. And then you look at the this book and it has such this like beautiful and like and again, I don't want to say clean style and like to say that it's similar in style to Beast of Burden is, you know, maybe like I said, when we were talking about the Frank Miller stuff before, maybe heaping a little bit too much praise on it. But it definitely does not look like any other Pet Avengers type book. It does not look like his normal style and everything that you said there. Uh, he's able to convey smugness, nobility, um, a pathos 
in yep. animals. It's one thing to do it with humans. It's another thing to do it with animals. It's another thing to do it with a variety of animals, you know? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a mix with the animals, especially. Not so much the humans. Um, us Like a mix of like, and I could be wrong because I was never good at this, like Butch Geist and Steve Epting. Like a mix of those. Somehow. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a much better analogy than what I was looking for. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and and listen, I'm glad that we were able to get an advanced copy of this. I'm glad that we were able to get out in front of this. So hopefully you listen to this. And, you know, obviously, I don't know if you're a digital person listening to this or I don't know if you're a physical, um, you know, comic book person um, when it comes to this sort of things. But this is a book that got solicited with six variant covers. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling this book is going to sell out. Right. Once the buzz starts on this book, and there is no B in this book, that's in the other Kyle Starks book. <laughs> but once the buzz starts on this book, people are going to scramble for this. I, I hope so. People get on board. Let's get on board now. Anytime that we've talked about a Kyle Starks book, it's we've we've gushed over it, and it's again, it's great that we made friends with Kyle because he's such a good writer and everything. But like. We wouldn't sit here and tell you to buy something bad. Nope. Nope. And I, I, I'm still consoling poor young Annie the Kitty, Joe. I'm still consoling. Yeah. She was crying on the bathroom floor. <laughs> if that's if that's not a pull quote to go on the trade for this, you know I don't what? Know what it is. Contact Kyle. Get get her, a, you know, a, a credit. Yes. Um, so, like I said, thank you uh, for bearing with us through all of that. Um, hey, while you're over at longboxheroes.com, be sure to check out past episodes of this show, past episodes of Longbox Heroes After Dark, and follow along with us as we do. Todd and Joe have issues as we go through the entirety of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and it's not just the 75 issues, because if it was, we'd be done in about six weeks. Uh, but it's all the miniseries, it's all the one shots, it's all the all the everything. Mm-hmm. And right now we are in the middle of the kindly ones. We cross right over into the middle here with parts six and seven, with issues sixty-one and sixty-two. And this is the part of the show where I turn things over to Todd, and uh, I just I get to say yeah a bunch. Yep. Um, obviously uh, Neil Gaiman writing and art by Mark Hempel. Um, so now, uh, Lydas, you know, still wants revenge for Daniel, um, and she's amongst the Gorgons or the imagination in her head kind of a deal. And they're, you know, they're hoping that she'll stay with her, with them in their house. Um, but she, she talks about how like, no, I was dreaming of like, as she sleeps, like her family, her husband and Daniel, and she wants like revenge. And they're like, you could stay with us. It's like, nope, I want to go. They're giving her, like, water, but she's slowly turning in to the Medusa. And I yes. like the bit where she's drinking the water and the snakes are dipping into it. And that's when she figures out who who the Gorgons are, kind, kind, of, a, kind of a deal. Right. And I would be remiss to mention on the first page of issue 61 here, of course, we got the six-panel layout across the first panel and the last panel of the page. We have that thread. In this instance, it's a spider web. But it's that yep. same thread that was being knit in issue in part one of the kindly ones. Yep. And even the other two Gorgons say it fits into what's going on in this instance here with Lyda, but it also goes back to the overall storytelling of it's happening. 
very slowly, but it's happening. It always takes longer than you think, doesn't it? Yep. And, and again, I, I have a feeling that this is one of those things where, like, Neil had a thought, a plan, an idea of how long this is all going to go. And as he's like, I got I got all these loose ends, all these threads, literally, to wrap up before we are, we're done. And it's taken a lot longer than I originally would have thought. Mm-hmm. And in the end, she basically says, like, they're like, won't you stay? She's like, I will not stay. I will have my revenge. Like, he killed my husband and my son. You're like, boh. So we cut to Rose Walker and her journal, and she's walking. And I like the bit that she walks by Lyda. She's leaning against the wall. That's her. And she misses it because she knows who she is. She's the one who was babysitting Daniel when Daniel was kidnapped. So that's just like, just uh, she's oblivious at the time. This could have maybe gone differently if she turned her head to the right, Joe. Yep. And again, that's just how, that's such like a little thing that, you know, could be so easily overlooked. And here you are, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I uh, I won't read it all, but we're in Rose Walker's journal, and I love the her reciting the things they don't teach you in life, and I'm like, you know what? They don't teach you any of that stuff um, in life, and in the end, she ends up talking about uh, they don't teach you uh, about uh, when someone's dying, and that's the most important because... Uh, in the end, we find out that she's going to see Zelda in hospice, one of the one of the women f- that she knew from the doll's house. The spider uh, ladies, yes. The spider ladies, and they end up having, like, you know, a conversation, and she's passing away, and she's talking about the, the, the footsteps in the sand kind of a deal, um, and she feels like she's been dumped in the sand. Um, and... Uh, Rose is smiling at her. She's just talking. She's like, why are you smiling? He's because you never talked. Like, the whole time I knew you, you were the, the, the one that never talked. And she basically, you know, as she's doing this, she has a, a, a stutter, a stammer. Um, and the bit that always jumps out at me is that uh, Rose is trying with her, you know, her, her, her the best she can not to finish the sentences. And I've always heard that that will like can set off someone who stammers. So I always like that's one thing that goes in my mind uh, because she even says I did it once and she cried and wouldn't talk again for an hour. Um, and I was like, okay, that that's 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 kind of cool. Um, and she kind of talks with Rose, like, you know, says some things. She's like, no, where she goes with it. She's like, no, I'm just here as a friend and to pick up your bills because she, we, we find out, we remember that she was left her grandmother's inheritance. So she's got, um, some money, uh, and she's just going to help out and pay the bills. Uh, so as this goes on, she gets a message from, uh, Zelda. She says, I fell asleep. And in my dream, your grandmother talked to me and she's like, that's stupid. You're, my grandmother's dead. She goes, I, I know she said she was dead. She said, go back to where she lived. And, uh, sh- sh- you know what that means. And he's like, Oh, this is just too weird. She goes, but if you go, she'll give you your heart back, which if you read doll's house, you know, that was an important part of the story. So that immediately gets her attention. She even drops a vase of flowers. So it's like, you know, like you said, all the parts are coming together. Yep. Um, so we cut to the dreaming and, you know, there's Morpheus and Lucian with uh, the Corinthian. And he's basically explaining things because the Corinthian's got questions. He's like, I, rem- I remember a little bit, and, but a lot of it's new. What's going on? He says, I used a bit of you 
from the old one and you know things will come back things won't this is the way it is but um i have a job for you and lucia are you and matthew that you have to do and matthew's like oh i, I, I don't want to go he's like but i don't like him he's like i'm not asking you to like him i'm asking you to go so and i'm going i like the back and forth between uh you know matthew and corinthian about eating eyeballs because that's both in their job description <laughs> Um, and basically they say your errand is to find me a certain child and bring him here. Joe, I wonder who that child could be. Okay. So this part here with Morpheus, I just want to start by saying, um, you know, obviously Mark Hempel, you know, very unique style, very stylized look to his art. But uh, that first page there where he draws Morpheus, maybe the honkiest Morpheus has ever looked. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Yes. So, obviously, we, the reader, know that Morpheus did not take Daniel, okay? Um, Obviously, we don't know who took Daniel yet, but we know Daniel is missing, Daniel is gone. Uh, We saw that, um, you know, a couple issues ago, maybe Loki and Robin Goodfellow had him, but are they the ones behind it all? We shall see. And the fact that Morpheus now is setting two of his emissaries on a quest to find a certain child. We assume it's Daniel. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll find out. Yep. And now that I'm looking at that hunky Sandman, I can't stop seeing the striations show. (laughs) And as it ends, I do love the shot of Corinthian smiling and you could see it through the sunglasses. Yes. Such a great shot. So now we cut to uh, fairy and Nuwal is back, you know, and she's talking to the queen um, and she's very pleased to see her. Um, and she's like uh, very interested in the, the pendant and everything. She asked her like, you know, it's a lovely bobble. You know, what would you do if I asked you for it? And he's like, oh, it was a gift. But if you were to ask for it. And so she's kind of, you know, off on that. And also she kind of says that, Nuala, maybe? Are your, is your glamour a little less glamorous than it's been before since you put it back on? And, you know, you might look better with a few more curves. Uh so d- does she have the glamour here? Did she glamour it up a little bit, Joe? Because she doesn't look like the frumpy version. And I mean that, you know, nicely. Because I like Nuala, like, you know, well, natural. Right. So she definitely, she has blonde hair. When she was in the Dreaming, she had more messy, shorter brown hair. At the very least, that, right? Right. Um, and, you know, Nuala even says, this glamour may have changed a little, but... I seem I'm or but I seem as I feel comfortable seeming. Mm-hmm. So I think this is just what the glamour has become after her three years in the dreaming, right? I, I feel like she's down she knows she has to, but she's downplaying it. Do you know what I mean? She wants to be natural, but there's no way she can go see the queen for all natural. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's at least my take. But, and, uh, you know, and obviously it feels as though, like, they don't explicitly s- state it here, but it feels as though that Nuala was sent to the Dreaming to see if Morpheus still had feelings for the Queen. Mm-hmm. And um, then when it's neither clear or unclear if he does or does not, uh, the Queen is more frustrated than anything else. 
Right. And when she asked about the bobble, she's like, I would give it to you, of course, if you were to ask, but it was a gift, milady. And I'm pretty sure she realizes who gave it to her. And she's like, this bores me. Farewell. Um, and she's like, I wish that she had learned manners in her time in the dreaming. Uh, so Bogart, the, like she's she's like kind of dwelling on stuff and Bogart, this little uh, fairy imp is like reading her a poem and she wants nothing to do with it. Uh, so then she's holding up the bobble and she's like, you know what? Yeah, I, I could call you, you know, like, you know, I'm sad here, but I, you know, and she's talking about her, her queen and talking about him and, you know, and how they might be lovers or whatever. And she goes, but I can always call you because I have this and that lights her up. You know, the one, the one time, you know, that she seems happy here. Um, um, right. And you get that little bit where she's looking at it and then very softly she says, but I can call you. I can always call. And that's not meant to be ominous. But ladies and gentlemen, that's ominous. That's that's not that's that's touching now. Give it a reread sometimes. Anyway, um so uh basically Lyda's making her uh, you know her decision not to stay with the women. She's going to go um, and I do like the, the two women say, if you had stayed with us, we could have given you life until death. And she's like, don't I get that anyway? And I was like, that's what we liked about you. You were funny. And I was like, I'm not even sure what that means. I, I feel I'm a halfway decent, you know, intelligent person, but I do kind of like that picture. And the Mark Hempel art of the two Gorgons just look absolutely, uh, scary, Joe. Right, and it's a bit as, you know, and even Rose is now, you know, we're, we're seeing a little bit more of her between worlds, you know, the, this whatever, rea- like our reality where she just looks like a homeless person and whatever is tempting her along the way on her quest. But we get that one shot of that last panel of Rose standing there and maybe for the first time since Daniel has gone missing, smiling. Yep, she looks happy because she's going to go get her revenge, Joe. Yeah. Um, so now we cut to Carla, which is Lida's friend and, you know, uh, that was in the apartment building. Uh, and she goes to the cops and basically gives the rundown of all the weird stuff that's been happening, like these two detectives. And this guy that she's talking to has no clue about all the points with the detective that we've gotten to at this point. And then she even says, like, I gave me this card, but it's blank. It had a number. I know. I'm starting to sound like a crazy person, aren't I? She's like, thanks. We'll get back to you. He's back to his magazine kind of a deal. Um, And I do like as she's leaving the police uh, station, there's that old guy who kind of, like, talked to Daniel earlier on. And she says, like, I know you and I know your friend and, you know, uh, but now I've seen her. She's got snakes in her hair and she's not a load in her head anymore. Um, I'm like, okay, so this guy can kind of see it. You know what I mean? Uh, And it makes it makes me think, obviously not a bigger player in how everything plays out. But is he another one of those people that have been living for hundreds of hundreds of years, like a mad heady type? Um, I think when we get to what's going on with him, he's touched by someone. You know what I mean? Sure. But uh, so she so Carla goes back home, uh, goes to Lida's house and she goes in the house and she ends up finding the, you know, the evidence photo of I'm doing air quotes, young Daniel being burnt. And it changes in her hands to. 
uh, Daniel normal, and but then like the picture comes alive, and I like that he still has the silver string around his wrist, and she he says her name, and she's like completely confused by it, and then the picture turns burst into flame, burning her hand, and I'm not sure that's the one thing with this. It looks like she has like total terrible third degree burns. Yes. And she's put underwater and she's just like, Oh, I'm going to gauze it up. And as Rose comes in to help her. And this is one of those things that I, of my mind, I'm like, this looks too bad for the situation that we're in, that we're just going to ha- sit around and have a discussion afterwards. If that makes any sense. Well, a nit- okay. Nitpick in Sandman, if you will, Joe. Uh, so, um, Hmm. How can I defend this? So in other panels, it shows that it goes up to and past her elbow. In other scenes, it shows her hand is like practically black before it gets bandaged up. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that it's more that that's the singe and the soot of the picture going up into flames on her hand. Right. Than her getting third degree burns than anything else. Right. May I counterpoint you for one second? Sure. If you look at the panel of her holding the picture, the shirt goes all the way down to her wrist. Yes. Then when she's putting her hand under the water, the shirt has burned clean up to her elbow. Right. So I don't know. That seems like a lot of fire. But anyway, um, so now... Uh, you know, Rose is concerned and she comes to see, like help her with the, the, the bandaging and they are, end up starts asking about what each other believes in. Um, and they're like basically weird stuff is Rose says, I, I yes. believe in. And Carla's like, that's as good a way to put it as ever, but maybe, uh, uh, you could come with me and we could figure out some of this weird stuff. She's like, Nope, I have to go back to, England uh, I leave tonight uh, and she's like uh, I gotta go see my grandmother and she's like doesn't she believe I gotta tell her something she's like doesn't believe she believe in a phone like nope she's been dead for years so it's like ah weird stuff Um, now we cut to Lida who's looking in the window of a of a, a a shop or whatever and then the reflection comes and she ends up talking to herself about you know uh, like her life and, and and how it can hit you and knock you down you have choices and in the end i like that it's maybe the three fates the furies the witches like that's what you know it was t- they're always trying to make three in this with the gorgons with this um in the next it, issue right in the yeah. in, in in this it's to the point where she ends up like talking about she could have laid down, but now she has something to do that she can't possibly do. And she's not even sure which one of the reflections is the real her, which is a nice, you know, touch. Uh, so Carla's going to her car to do whatever she's going to do. And she gets, you know, uh, stopped by the detective and she's like, you're not Pinkerton. You're not a cop. And he basically ends up doing stuff like controlling her to the point he's like, sit in the car. She sits in the car, throw your keys in the back. Like she can't fight against any of it. And he tells her like, uh, uh, the, the, the tragedy of you, Carla is all this is going on and you're never going to find out how it ends. You're never going to, you know, do who like, see what all this is about. She's like, who are you? And he ends up like 
bursting her into flames and saying, basically going into it, I'm Loki and I will no longer be under the obligation to no one. So basically when he was freed by Morpheus, you know, he said, all right, if I free, you owe me. And that will not stand with Loki. And that seems to be what's happening here. Maybe just seems to be, but who knows? But again, we saw Loki's involvement um, earlier uh, at the end of issue two with he and Robin Goodfellow. Um, and this is the first big reveal, I guess, that Loki is somehow involved in all of this, at least in the quote-unquote waking world. Sad to see Carla meet her de- demise here, but again, anyone who gets mixed up in all of this, uh, things are not going to go well. Yep. Um, so now on to 62? Yes. And this, I feel like, is a is an exercise issue. I don't know why. But uh, so we cut to Rose going to uh, who's was the artist? Charles Vest is is a fill in artist for this month. Well, no. So um, Glenn Dillon does like the the framing sequence. And doesn't Charles Vest just do the story that's in the middle? Uh, I believe so. OK, uh, but I, I could not find that definitively. But uh, either way. Uh, yeah, because usually it'll say like. Because, like, even on the art page, it says, like, Glenn Dillon, Charles Vest, Dean Ormstrom, Diaz-Rael. But usually it'll say, like, pages so-and-so and so-and-so by this, so-and-so and so-and-so right. by this. It does not state that here. So Rose is on uh, is on her way back to England. It's a bit different this time uh, as she's uh, in the next seat as someone who is uh, just reading a magazine and very creepy, which is, you know, wow. Uh and she gets there, and he's kind of following her. But, you know, luckily, we probably won't see much more of him. Uh, and she gets met by uh, this this guy who has the sign holding him. She's like, oh, I was expecting Mr. Holdaway, who was the guy who met her last time when she came. But we find out that uh, that uh, uh, he was his uncle, this guy's uncle. Uh, and he's here to take care of it because he died years ago. So she's like, oh, okay, uh, let's go. And she's like, oh, this is different than the last time. The other guy had like a leather like interior on the Jaguar. And I wish I, you know, I could ride in that again. But we have this little, you know, lunchbox. But it's a classic. And they like, you know, chit chat and she gets to know him. And they get to where Unity like stayed when she was asleep. Um, and they take her in to see the guy who's running the place. And his name is Paul McGuire, which is a name that might be ring some bells joe um i'll i'll save it until like they kind of reveal it but if you know you know at this point you know right and if you don't know you'll know by the end of the issue exactly so they end up you know talking and he's he gets the backstory because he's not sure who she is he's like oh unity was my was my grandmother's like oh that that who's this and the, the nurse is like the one who had the sleepy sickness and she's like okay uh, you want to go look around? She's like, I'm writing a book, kind of a story, kind of a deal. So I want to do that. And the nurse says, we'll take you around. Do you remember which room it was? She's like, no way I can forget. It's like, all right, you go. If you need me, call. And she goes upstairs and she looks around in the room. And then she goes into the to the washroom, to the linen, like the, the janitor's closet. Do you remember what this has to do with Doll's house or no? Right, because isn't that the room that she had opened up and that was where the dreaming stuff was? That was where the three witches were who say, we have plans for you. Right. 
And it's kind of nice. Now, I will say this. I, this section is always, you know, fun and long for, like, Sandman. But go buy the companion book. There are, so, like, during Kindly Ones, where it all comes around, where there are so many nods to past issues that I would be here for, for an hour just going, this was a nod to this issue in this panel, but there's a, there's, there's a bunch of them like that. Um, so she ends up meeting this old lady and they end up talking and she's like, Oh, uh, you know, where are you from? Well, it's a long story. She's like, well, I got plenty of time. You know, that's all we have around here. And are you from America? Well, I knew a guy from America and, uh, we got together and we had a kid and it, you know, didn't go well, kind of a deal. And, uh, there are some terms in here that, wow, Joe, you know what I mean? Well, and listen, I, I don't think there was any ill intent, no, I mean, um, even with the character, yeah. she's of a different time. And you're just like, I- I'm not offended, but it's like, it's it's eye-opening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So they end up, you know, bringing her to the room. And they said there was originally four of us. Now there's three, Joe, three old women. And they end up, like, saying they're introducing to each other. One's Amelia, one's uh, Magda. And this is, I could never get your last name right, dearie. Um, my name's Helena. I'm going to drop it here because she has another small part in the middle of this issue. Uh, this is confirmed by Neil Gaiman. This character is light as mother. Helena is light as mother. Okay. Because light as mother, like when it, when Lida was redone with her origin post crisis. Cause as I said before, Lida's parents were Steve Trevor and wonder woman in the golden age. So you can't do that anymore. She was, by somebody else and this was another fury who uh through a deal couldn't acknowledge like let say who when she had him she's like nobody can know Lida is my daughter so she goes off and she gets adopted and that's neil saying this was all in infinity inc uh all stuff and neil was like yeah i'm trying to say it because she has a, like a big greek name and that's where it comes from when she said when the lady says i'd introduce you but nobody ever gets your last name right so just a throwaway thing. It's in the companion. Um, I'll say it again. Go pick up that Sandman companion when you're done reading all this. Uh, so they end up sitting down and they talk about like their memories as old ladies about how they can't, can't remember what they had for breakfast, but they can remember years ago. And the one lady says, I remember all the stories that my grandmother told me. And they were, weren't the nice versions like, you know, you got from Hansel and Gretel. They were the original versions. And the story is the, what was the name of the story? It was the children who flew away. And this is when we get the Charles Vest bit where it's a guy who's a philanderer and he sees this woman and he meets her. He says like, you know, I'm going to be with you kind of a deal. And she goes, not until we're married. He goes, I promise you, I'll marry you. The next, you know, church I go into, I will marry you. Or she goes like, or I'll curse you, um, where our kids will fly away. Um, and he's like, oh, good. If they have kids, who cares? Let them be gone. She goes, and the worms will eat. And he's like, that's going to happen eventually anyway. So those are the two things that he says. And through a series of events, they come to churches. He's like, not that one. And he has an excuse for every single one. She says, like, well, let's, you know, I need to rest. Goes to a cottage, finds an old witch. And I like this, that the story changes. She says, whenever I hear the story, it changes a bunch of different times. Whether she was a witch, she was this, she was that. Um, as fairy tales often do. He kills her. He says, look, place for us to live. 
you go and raise our children. And he goes off and flanders oh, around. She says, oh, it's a good thing we passed by here. My old aunt just died and left us her cottage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he ends up burying her out in the back, you know, the old lady. Uh, so he goes off and he comes back every once in a while. And he comes back one time and he says, where are the kids? She's like, oh, you know, uh, they've flown away. And he's like, what? And they kind of, kind of, uh, they kind of have like that's part, part part of the curse, and then he ends up killing the 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 wife, and you know stuffs her under the bed, and the kids come back, and I, this is where I get a little confused on it. And they like they ask what happened, and he lies the way you know. Well, so okay, so sorry, a lot of it is when he comes home and the girls are gone, and the wife has a bunch of excuses as to where the girls are, right? Right. She's lying to him about where the girls are. And he's like, well, it's spring. They can't be out picking berries. Um, It's like, well, they can't be out fishing because there's a baby with them, too. Right. Mm -hmm. And all the lies that she tells. That and then finally says they flew away. That causes him to snap and kill her. Yeah. And then and then the kids come back from flying. And then he more or less tells the same lies to them that the mother told to him. Yep. And he hid the mother's body under the bed. When the kids see it, they end up killing him, right? Yes. And then he's haunted by the the dream of his wife and haunted by the old woman that he killed and his wife becomes the, the worms that eat him. And it's a, I would go, it's a cautionary tale, Joe. What would you say? I would, well... So again, the the cautionary part of the tale is, you know, we do get a break in the story, I think, where Rose is maybe asking questions, um, where they say that he was a bad man, um, and they're like, uh, okay, so uh, he was a bad man, they're all bad. Uh, Then somebody else in the story says, not my Danny, he wasn't, God rest him. That was the first woman who came upon Rose looking in the uh, broom closet. Uh, but yes, he was a man. They're all bad. I think that's the crux of the story. Right. But I think the the crux of the story is actual. The man in the story, he deserve it. Acts of revenge are sanctified. And to me, that would be like the, the, the this tale is about revenge. Um, and that's when we get a little bit more with Helena telling the story about, you know, killing. Uh, she ended, ended up killing the guy that uh, destroyed her lover's life and everything like that. And this is a story that I don't know has ever been told, uh, but I would, I'd like to think that Neil's got it up his sleeve. Um, But then she's talking to the three old ladies as she's about to leave. And, uh, and she's like, well, you know, men are bad kind of a deal. Like uh, women are about waking rose. And she, the three of them say, as mothers, we wake them from nothingness to existence. As maidens, we, we wake them to the joys and miseries of adulthoods, wake them to the worlds of lust and responsibilities. And the third one says, and then when their time's up, it's always up, it's always us has to wash them for the last time and we lay them out for the wake, which is basically describing the three witches, the fates and what they do in life. A lot of threes, Joe. Yes. Um, so uh, he's like, uh, you know, I got to get back to doing what I'm doing. And she's like, she's going to walk around the house. And she ends up seeing uh, an owl in the window, which is another nod to Doll's house and a, and a bird in the window. And she ends up talking to uh, McGuire. 
and he's like, oh, uh, you want to see something? Um, and they end up talking about Winnie the Pooh, which I thought was really cool, um, and the backstory of that. And she's like, you want me to show you something? She's like, oh, you're not going to be like some creepy guy. He's like, no, I'm the best kind of creepy guy. <laughs> I'm a classic, uh, you know, person who will never hurt you because of my uh, uh, what I prefer. She's like, oh, okay, Let, let's let's go in here. And she ends up showing the, the sleeping guy. And he says, who is this? Your father's like, no, it's the love of my life. And she ends up explaining that he's pretty much Alex Burgess, the, the guy of the son, the son of the guy who trapped Morpheus. He's like, he's been like this, and he's. He's sleeping and he hasn't woke up and I hope his dreams are pleasant ones. And she's like, do you think they are? And he's like, no, not really, but hopefully he'll come back. He's like, my grandmother woke up. Maybe he will, you know, you just have to hope. Um, And he tells him, come to my, come see me sometime. I'll show you the old creepy layer that they did all the magic stuff at. And she's like, okay. And as she's leaving, she leans down and she gives Alex the, the the ring the the uh, I forget what she called it in the in the issue but the signet the signet that her grandmother gave him and said here this is for you you know for luck and then they just have McGuire sitting there holding uh, Alex's hand the sins of the fathers old fellow the sins of the fathers and I'm like all the characters are coming back so so I think you know and obviously they, they're giving you giving us a bunch of information right. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he says he was no, he was he was a magician with no talent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, his uh, Alex was no magician, but his father left him an obligation. And you had mentioned that Alex went to sleep, and he's been asleep for over five years. And Rose is like, "Well, my my my, you know, my grandmother woke up." And they mentioned that the day that Alex fell asleep was the day that Rose's grandmother woke up. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, oh, irony, right? Right. But no, that's the day that Morpheus was freed. Yep. It's almost like we know it from the story, Joe. Oh. So this, so these issues are good. I get why they tell the story about the philandering man and the flying children to throw in there, um, you know, as a fable, as a whatever in this. Um, you know, there's a Rose story, which is great, but you're we're tying up so many loose ends from Doll's House and Preludes and Nocturnes, even from the very first issue, stuff is getting end around it here. Yep, yep. All the way to, you know, Seasons of Mid... It's all around, you know? Yes. So. Uh, but again, next week we got, what, 63 and 64 to talk about? Yep. yep. And- so, like... We're going faster and faster. Joe. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, you know, we're 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 going to be at the end of Sandman here, but then, like I said, we still got a lot more. Of course, if you look at the poll or the poll post, the have issues post when that goes up mm-hmm. uh, every week, you see what we got coming up still, and there's still quite a lot to get us to the end of the year. Of course, um, while you're at longboxheroes.com, of course, be sure to check out our store where you can get shirts and pins and stickers with our fancy logo on them. Um, the T Public store sale is going on starting on Thursday, 35% off all sorts of designs inspired by this show, soon to be named Network, right on down the line. Get them on everything from notebooks to cell phone covers and everything in between. Uh, but the best way to support us and support the show is uh, by signing up for the Patreon at patreon.com slash longboxheroes. A uh, little as a dollar a month is going to get you two bonus shows from Todd and myself. One previewing the past, where we look at 30 years ago this month's previews catalog and comic book oddities, 
where we're looking at some of the lesser known, uh, lesser talked about, and maybe for a good cause, um, <laughs> comic book media that is out there, whether it be TV shows, whether it be movies, whether it be pilots, whether it be whatever, we're getting into it all. Um, you know, we've been compiling a list as we've been going along with the initial list, and it looks like we may have enough for like another two years of doing this. So we might not even put it up to a vote this time around while we're still searching for that. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield, Dave Coulier, Bush <laughs> Gardens infomercial thing, you know? Yeah, that's the holy grail of the Patreon shows. <laughs> that, right that's a great piece of lost media. There's, oh, there's a guy I know who deals with lost media. I wonder if I throw the bug to him about it, right? You'll have to. You'll have to. I will. I'm going to write an email to him when we're done here. Um, so... Uh, also, you know, dollar a month is going to get you that. It's also going to get you the full scans of those previews catalogs that we talk about on previewing the past. And we've got the full scans of those going all the way back to 1990 on, uh, we're on the, you know, we're in the middle end of 1993. So even if you don't have the time in your day to listen to extra podcasts and listen, a lot of people don't, I do, maybe you don't, uh, the previewing the past ones get to be three hours plus. Cause there's a lot of dense material in there, especially in the era of comics that we're talking about. But if you're an old comic book reader or you're a new comic book reader, just pull up a previews from 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 32 years ago, and just look through it just as a glimpse is what the comic book market looked like way back then. And again, of course, at $5 a month, it's going to get you all that stuff. It's going to get you access to the main two shows two weeks before everyone else. And it's also going to get you access to after dark two days before everyone else so that you can listen to these shows in the correct listening order yes uh and so last but not least i guess we have spoiler filled talk of blue beetle yes uh so i'm glad you got a chance to go see it um i know sometimes you don't get a chance you don't get an opportunity especially with what's been going on go listen to after dark this week to find out what todd has been dealing with um but this is the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle, the new Blue Beetle, the one that's been more currently in DC comic books for the last 16 to 17 years, right? I feel old. I was going to say, how crazy is it that a character that was introduced 16 years ago is new? I don't even want to get into it, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yes. But um, before we start the you know discussion of the movie itself let me just tell you about my movie going experience all right joe imagine this i walk Sicily, in 1943 <laughs> i walk into the theater in dixon by my house i the next showing is the imax showing at one o'clock or at uh, seven o'clock so you know i have no other choice unless i want to do later hefty hefty price tag for the ticket but i'm like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna take one for the show so i walk in and i'm there you know 15 minutes to showing 15 minutes nobody's there 10 minutes nobody's there five minutes nobody four three two one nobody there the movie starts joe all the way to the end i have the imax theater to myself not another person not someone on their phone talking telling their friend like oh this is this is Jaime Reyes you know the guy they said is Jaime Reyes a second ago none of that I'm in my bliss it is godlike I have never had a better movie going experience 
than this movie. The closest ever was second. Me and Scott going to see A Million Ways to Die in the West, and we were the only people in the theater. But I love this. May taint my view of the movie a lot, Joe. <laughs> so I, I will say this. Listen, Monday 7 o'clock show is uh, apparently the hot ticket if you want to be a loner at a movie theater, right? Especially the, the $16 IMAX. I, I will say my theater was – so I went to go see Flash on a Monday around this time, and I went to see Blue Beetle. There was more people in Blue Beetle than there was in Flash. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it was a packed theater, but I would say like double digits worth of people. Right. Going to see Flash at 7.20 on a Monday? I will say this. If a regular movie and I saw your ticket was $9. Yep. I would pay the $7 premium every time if I was alone in the theater. Every time. Every time. Like I said, I almost had that with uh, the $9 ticket for Flash until like two people came in right before the movie started, you know? Their mistake, but I just wanted to get that out because it was so good. (laughs) Um, So, again, we're going to get into spoiler talk about the movie. Um, Let me start by saying that I liked it. Didn't love it. I liked it. Uh, Let me start by saying I loved it. Might have been the theater alone, but I loved it. And this is the shortest answer because this is the first DC movie since, you know, like the new, you know, regime, whatever, uh, with the Zack Snyder era, whatever, that had a lot of heart, Joe. A lot of heart. And I was happy for that. So that's, I think that's the strongest part of this movie is you say heart, I say family, togetherness, whatever it is. And there's been multiple blockbusters that have come out in the last five to ten years where the people going out and do the press tour for stuff say that, oh, these these movies are about family. And listen, you could make the jokes about how they say the Fast and the Furious movies are about family. You can make a joke about like when they say like the new Star Wars movies were about family, right? Mm-hmm. I feel as though those people were giving given a line to go out and say, like, please convince people that that's what these movies are about. But this, this movie's legitimately about family. Right, but this movie legitimately is about family. And it's one thing for a movie to be about family, but it's another thing for a movie to be about a likable, realistic family that's mm-hmm. full of wacky aliens and superpowers. Right. But you know immediately from the time that we're introduced to them when they meet Jaime at the airport, you know what every character is, whether it be the sister, the Mm -hmm. mom, the dad, the grandma, or Rudy, I guess, friend, uncle, whatever, George Lopez Lopez. Yeah, George Lopez, conspiracy guy, right? Right. And I'll even say this. So, you know, I think we had discussed in the Discord and other people had talked online that this movie was originally just supposed to be a direct to HBO Max or Max or whatever the hell it was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they decided to do a theatrical release on this, and I don't think this one got delayed as much as some of the other movies did in the right. pipeline of stuff. And I think that definitely helps it, because you didn't see Shazam... You, did you or did you not see Shazam 2? I did not see Shazam 2 or Black Adam. Okay, nobody saw Black Adam. But Shazam 2 was a movie that was on the shelf for a year and a half for a variety of reasons, because it was such an quote unquote integral part of whatever was going on with this iteration of the DC cinematic universe. 
because this movie wasn't part of whatever that was before, and it's now officially, unofficially, the start of whatever the James Gunn, Peter Safran stuff is, Mm -hmm. this movie didn't feel dated. This movie didn't feel stale. This movie felt fresh and different. It felt like the colors that pop in this movie, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even just the visual style of the movie felt different. The fact that they had a movie with a, and listen, you know, whatever your opinion is, it wasn't a bunch of white people as the stars and main characters of the movie. Well, yeah, like, I, I see, and that's what I always come to, and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, put on that hat. But it's of the mind. If you're gonna do it, make the characters interesting and stuff like. I hate when you know they. This is this for the and the character isn't interesting or whatever. The, all the family members were great, and I loved watching them. And I never felt like because they're you know the the ethnicity that they are that I that I felt like that was a uh, a gimmick or a hook. I was like, no, these are legitimate fun. I'm having fun watching these people. This is a good story to me. That's all I want. That's all I ever yes. want. You know what I mean? Sorry, um, I went off on a rant there. No, it's okay. So, um, you know, and you get like some archetypes and you get some stereotypes and stuff. And again, we're talking spoiler stuff. And the bit at the end with the grandma, like that she was like an old revolutionary. That was fun. That was fun, but I felt as though, like, we've seen that sort of thing. It's been a while since we've seen it in a movie, but it's like, okay, the grandma's the one that takes charge, whatever, right? Right. Um, I like George Lopez's character being, like, the conspiracy theory guy, but also, like, a tinkerer of stuff. And some of his stuff looks shoddy, but, like, ends up working and helping. Um, Everybody kind of plays their part to a T, but it's not one of these things where, like, I'm going to introduce a character who's a one-note thing, and their one note is going to pay off. The characters were nuanced. Yeah. Like, they, each character has their own little arc in the movie. Obviously, it's Jaime's story, it's Jenny Cord's story, their relationship and what ends up happening with them, but, like, you're, you're, the, the rest of the immediate family gets a beginning, a middle, end story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, so Jaime comes home from school. He went to Gotham University, right? Right. Pre-law comes back to find out that they're losing the house. They lost the garage. But the dad is like, you know, we'll figure it out. Has a bad ticker, the old man. Right. And and again, uh, like I so uh, I'll say that didn't telegraph to me, you know, um, but obviously, spoilers, the, you know, uh, when the house ends up being under attack, when Susan Sarandon and her goons and the OMAC, Todd OMAC is in this. <laughs> and, Joe, nobody's listening here. We're not recording, right? Uh, okay. Um, this is one of the few times I liked OMAC, man. Whoa, okay. Uh, usually I hate OMAC, usually hate everything Kirby, like, kind of did at DC, but this version of OMAC. Kind of cool. Because they tie it into Blue Beetle. Yep, yep. Um, you know, obviously, in however you want to work it. But um, so there's your introduction to the family. Court Industries, Susan Sarandon, she's looking for the Scarab. Because the Scarab is going to be the key that fuels the OMAC, the One Man Army Corps project. And I like if you're a Blue Beetle current day 
Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle thing, the way the scarab looks on him when he's not all suited up, is what all the little OMAC things looked like. Right. Uh, I thought that was a cool touch. And even, like, the opening credits where they give you that history thing. And even if you're, like, checked out during that, right? Mm-hmm. That's just stuff in there for people like you and me. Where they're saying Ted Cord and Dan oh. Garrett and oh. OMAC and all that sort of stuff. Like, m- you and I, me, watching that scene, I could have just left after that. I'm like, this is the best movie ever. Joe, when <laughs> Ted, everything, everything, Ted Cord, Dan Garrett, I was like, all right, and I and I think our good buddy DJ said in the Discord too, where he's like, "Todd, there's gonna, I don't know if you're gonna like the movie, but there's gonna be there's gonna be stuff in there you like." And he was definitely right, like the Ted Gord stuff, and the Dan Garrett, and then just I'm jumping ahead when the costumes show up. Oh my god! Yeah, I was I was in my glory, and when this is all done, I'm gonna tell you where Blue Beetle needs to go in the future. From this. Okay, but go ahead. Um, so, you know, uh, Jaime and the sister need to get jobs, and they do a bit where Jaime and the dad are talking on the roof. Jaime's 22, he's graduated from college, so he's of drinking age, they're sharing a beer, whatever it is, and Jaime is optimistic. Things are going to work out. (laughs) Right. I have a job, you know, I'm going to get a job, we're going to be rich, we're going to be millionaires, we're going to have this. And they cut to that scene in the morning of him standing over and looking at, like, the pool and the sunset of the building and everything else. Right. And then the smash to reality that he's working at a country club. I love that bit. I thought that was such a fun bit, right? That is a great, not like, thing. Take. Yeah. And we're not going to go through every single bit of the movie with all of this, but um, Jenny Cord, Ted's daughter and Susan Sarandon that's Ted's sister right they're at odds no pun intended in what cord industry should be Uh, Jenny the daughter feels that it should be more what her dad was doing which was more philanthropy stuff less wartime stuff and obviously Susan Sarandon believes otherwise listen her name in the movie is Victoria Cord but it's Susan Sarandon I'm going to call her Susan Sarandon right right um, and Jenny finds out that Susan Sarandon has found the scarab. She proves herself to be competent and able, not damsel in distress sort of thing. She could handle her own. She smuggles the scarab out in a big belly burger box, Todd. <sighs> I did. I popped for that, too. That's probably why there was no fast food tie-ins with this, unless we were going to retrofit uh, Jack in the Box to be a big belly burger or something, right? Mm -hmm. Which I would not have been opposed to. So she sneaks it out. They, uh, you know, they they call security to close off the building. Jaime is there because Jenny and Jaime had an interaction at the country club earlier the, the day before. Show up tomorrow for a job. He's there. They have no idea who or why he's there for. She bumps into him, gives him the big, big belly burger box with the scarab in it. Says, don't do anything with it. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't do nothing. I'll be in touch. Brings it home to the family. Of course, the family's messing around with it. And then that's when we get the moment where the scarab reacts to Jaime and connects to him. Okay. And this is one of my first nitpicks of the movie. I like this scene a lot. However, I feel as though this scene may have been a little too intense for younger viewers. Now, 
This is a PG-13 movie. We got swears all over the place. Yep. And that's my other nitpick of the movie. I I feel as though you could have leaned a little lower on the end of PG-13, closer to PG almost, not done so many swears. You get one, you get two, right? There was no big ones, right? But there was a lot of the little ones. And even when they show the scarab connected to him, um, they, like, the family even reacts about how horrific it looks. And it's PG-13 horrific, right? Right. But I feel as though they could have toned it down just a little and made this movie a little bit more accessible to kids, and I hope it ends up being. Maybe I'm out of touch, and maybe kids enjoy the S-word and body horror. Maybe okay. they do. I okay. did. Let 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 me tell you on the two things from my point of view that you're talking yeah. about. Um, the S-word kind of bothers me, but it doesn't. I think the one that really bothered me was when the sister says, I have to use the bathroom. Like, yeah. that was just like a punch. It was like... Even, you know, even with me, with my family, I don't talk like that. You know what I mean? And I know that's the character, whatever. I was like, that's the one. She could say it when, like, you know, lightning bolts are flying at her. You could say that word. But I was just like, oh, I'm I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, nah, that wasn't for me. But all the other ones, I'm like, all right, it's a bit much for, you know, a kid's movie. But the body, I'd like, to, for the guy who's eked out by horror, I thought that, w- that was nothing. That was perfectly fine for any uh, like any age under over eight i would guess i don't know and uh, and so okay and uh, and maybe, maybe you're right less. i don't know I, i'm gonna say you might be but i'm just saying they could have toned it down just a little bit and maybe had a little bit closer to like their spider-man you know and that's who blue beetle dc cinematic universe should be targeted as you know in, in a perfect world like every fourth kid that comes trick or treating this year should be Blue Beetle, right? Um, and I'm with you because he's he's pretty much Spider Man, like you said. Yeah, with a hint of Iron Man in there. Yes, and we'll get to that a little bit later on as well. Right, um, and the whole weapon story with Susan Sarandon is very Iron Man and Ted Cord. You know what I mean? So, yes. Um. But- so then we get the bit of Jaime trying to like connect with the scarab, figure out how the powers work and everything like that. And this is not something with the movie. This is something that I don't like in general. Like I like the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle stuff, but I don't like that every now and then they just decide like, eh, the scarab's just not going to work the right way because we need to like have a little bit of adversity because if the scarab works the right way all the time, then Jaime is essentially unstoppable. And that's well, not a fault of the movie, but that's a fault of, like, that's just a little thing I don't like about the way the, the, the current Blue Beetle works. Okay, so now, just so I understand, I'm not knocking your comic knowledge. You're, you're, you, like, that happens in the comic, too. Yes. I don't, because, like, I don't like it in the comic. Okay, just making sure, because I will say this, there are certain things I'm not sure now that happen in this movie if they did happen in the comic. With the family. So I will get to with the father. I'm not sure how the father works out in the comics. I don't remember. Uh, the father does not die in the comics. Okay, which we'll get to. That's one of my pet peeves of, of this movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually like it. I like the idea. I always did like the idea of the two uh, wills 
uh, fighting each other. Like, especially when the Beatle costume wanted to, like, murder somebody. You know, and he's like, no, we don't do that kind of deal. Which is a kind of thread going through the movie. But, yeah, I have no problem. I, I always like that uh, about this Blue Beetle. Otherwise, yes, he becomes way too powerful. Right. And then now we're into the superhero portion of the movie. Everybody's doing superhero-y stuff. Um, Find they out need that to the, remove the scarab, you know. Right. They, they need we, stuff. Right. We find out that the only way to remove the scarab from him is to kill him. Obviously, we're like, well, the scarab's stuck. Susan Sarandon and her goons find out that the scarab is stuck. Well, they're like, well, we need the scarab to power all of our Omax, and she's got the one guy that she rescued. Um, that like maybe she has like romantic feelings for, or maybe she's leading him on, or or maybe she's just really really turned on by heavy machinery. I, I felt like she was a creepy mother more. Right. Okay. Um, but then they end up getting Jaime. They are going to drain all the, the the blue beetle essence out of him, and then essentially just kill him. And while that's going on, that's when Jaime has, like, the higher-level experience inside the Scarab. He gets that final moment with his dad for that bit of closure. He That's when he and the Scarab finally get on the same page, and that's when the family come and rescue him. We get our big battle at the end. We get the big knockdown dragout battle between Jaime and the main Omac guy. Um, uh, Carapax was his name, maybe? I think so. It's not K-Pax, that famous Kevin Spacey movie. Oh, but boy. It's like it. Um, and then we get the bit where, you know, Carapax, the OMAC, kind of figures out that, like, he has that moment where Jaime spares him. Yep. Where Jaime is, like, ready to go, and the Scarab is the one that steps in, and I get that's why all that other stuff is in the movie, so that we can have this moment here at the end where Jaime is about to kill this guy, and the Scarab is like, no, you taught me that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, and he spares him. That gives Carapax that moment where he gets to reflect on his life, that maybe what Susan Sarandon did to him wasn't the best, and Mm -hmm. then he kind of ends up sacrificing himself to save Jaime and his family, to, you know, to kill Susan Sarandon, kind of stop her plan, and destroy all the other Omax and everything else like that. Um, obviously, Cord Industries, now that Jenny's in charge, the Reyes' house is destroyed, the, the, the community finally comes together, they have a big party, house is gonna be saved, looks like Jaime and Jenny are gonna be together, credits roll, and then we get our mid-credit sequence. Right. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get Um, to that. And I kind of glossed over stuff because, like, once it gets into the superhero-y stuff, like, what are we going to do? It's like, oh, he's fighting a bunch of guys. And no, I'm with you. Stuff, Other than you know? them yeah. finding the Beetle Cave, that was, you know what I mean? Yeah. I like that. And I want a Ted watch in the worst way. <laughs> I, when that Ted watch showed up, I was like, can I buy one of those? Um, so uh, I will say uh, just one quick love. The, the, the Beetle Tech and the Beetle Bug was – Everything my little heart for years wanted to see, and then when they have Kickstart My Heart play, I'm like, everything. And the 80s tech, beautiful. I'm going to tell you the few things I didn't like about the movie. Okay. I did not like Susan Sarandon as a villain. I feel like that this was a paycheck for her. She phoned everything in. 
every scene, I was like, she does not want to be here. Um, but the the the, the old Mac character carries the villain. You know what I mean? Because he's great. Um, the the bit there's a bit. You know how you were talking like you know the, the the Hispanic family and blah blah blah. Where you know does it tick boxes or whatever? The joke where. Not the joke, but the thing that they say where it's like, oh, well, Ted was going to run the bi- the business, uh, even though my, my grandfather and Susan Sarandon built it. But he gave it to Ted because, and the son goes, sexism? And he goes, yeah. She goes, yeah. And I'm like, is it sexist if the grandfather knew, kind of knew this is what she would do with the company? That she was a murdering freak? Like, and I know I'm I'm not getting hot over it, but I was just like, I don't know. I, I think in the long run, the grandfather was, I'd rather have Ted run the business into the ground than have a woman create, like, kill a bunch of people to make an unstoppable army. Don't know. Saying maybe that was the wisest of the two. But, uh, and then uh, I'm trying to think finally what I didn't, I think that was about it that I didn't like. I didn't like that Ted gets brushed away so quickly, but. We'll we'll get to that. But again, Ted has gone missing because he yes. had been out looking for the scarab. We're not we, we're missing and presumed dead. Yes. But then we get our mid credit sequence, right? Which is the computer, you know, saying like, "Oh, you've started it up. Whoever like this has opened the channel to me. I'm Ted." Getting a message to you know Ted Cord's daughter. It's Ted. I'm alive. You know, kind of a deal. And then the screen goes black. Um. We need Ted Cord, Joe. I I agree. Now, uh, do you have any nit- other nitpicks about the movie? No, like I said, my only re- like I said, my only real nitpicks. Oh, so oh, oh, we we're talking before, um, especially with the battle at the end, um, especially with Susan Sarandon. And again, I I feel as though she did good in that scene where her and Jenny I have the meeting at the country club, and they're kind of like going back and forth at each other. I think feel that was her strongest scene. So I was maybe a little forgiving of her sleepwalking through the rest of the movie. That was the best scene. Her was like saying you're like a charity brat kind of a dig. Yeah. And I think it again, I can't speak for her, but it definitely feels as though she could relate more to those sort of scenes as opposed to the scenes where she's like a mustache twirling villain. I'm with you. I'm with um, you. And maybe she was miscast or whatever it was. If you believe IMDb, Sharon Stone was originally supposed to be that role. Oh, the Catwoman. Connection. And then you have the Catwoman tie-in, right? And but anyway, did you ever watch what we do in the shadows, Joe? At all? No. Okay, you know the guy, the the the, the guy who was helping Susan Sarandon, who ends up turning on her. Yes. And she doesn't know his name. I don't know if that's a bit to the character on what we do in the shadows, but his character, the, the, the vampires that he's with, he's like, they're familiar who helps them. They never get his name. Right. So I was cracking up as they, she kept getting his, and he's like, that's not my name. And he's pretty much playing Guillermo from what we do in the shadows. And I'm like, I, you don't, you, you won't get it. Cause you never saw it. But to me, right. that popped me hard. Okay. Uh, so we we get like the 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 origin story, the suit, the battle at the end. Th- this movie felt like the best parts of the first Iron Man movie, which is a really good movie, mm-hmm. and the best parts of like whatever your favorite Spider Man movie is, with a smidge of Guardians of the Galaxy. Right, and listen, 
a great man once said, if you take from one person, it's stealing. If you take from multiple people, it's called research. Right, you're sampling. Yeah, and again, like, you take the stuff that hits and you, like, like, hey, we saw this worked and we saw this worked and, like, let's not try to go grim and gritty and dark. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's try to make things a little bit brighter, a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more positive, a little bit more, you know, yep. have a little bit more heart to them. You know, a lot of those previous Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder adjacent DC movies had no heart to them. I agree. And this had all the heart. And I just remembered my last pet peeve and I'll do it quickly and I'll get to my dream booking of Blue Beetle from here on out. Um, that they killed the father. I'm, I I do believe, I understand that from the history, Batman's fa- parents being gunned down, Superman losing his whole planet, and Spider-Man with Uncle Ben. That there's a history of tragedy and losing a loved one. But I felt, and Jeff Johns is the biggest to blame, and I might have discussed this on the show, off the show, I don't know. When he killed Barry's mother... And then later on killed Hal's father to give him a tragic backstory. And now every hero in the world can't just be heroic. They have to be, they have to have somebody die. And I'm like, Blue Beetle never had that. Flash never had that till Jeff Johns got their hands on it. Flash never, or Green Lantern never had that. So you know what I mean? I would just like somebody once to be a hero because they feel they should stand up and do it. Not because a dying family member told them to do it. I don't know. That's just a nitpick for me. No, and I get where you're coming from. I don't feel as though it was because the loved, the dying loved one, but it was more so that the dying loved one helped give yeah. Jaime that closure to be able to get that connection with uh, the, the scarab that he needed to go to that next moment. It's easy shorthand when you're trying to tell a superhero origin yeah. story. How about this, Joe? Put him in a coma and you still connect with him. You know what I mean? Something. Like, you don't have to kill, like, the chance of him coming back. I honestly thought when he went down that he might survive. Like, Jaime was going to be taken away and thought he died. The suit me like, last I saw, his heart wasn't working. And then you could have that whole situation kind of, sort of, still. But then he comes home and he's like, oh, they they resuscitated me. Hey, everybody, Jamie, Jaime's father's okay. Kind of a deal. So, I don't I, I'll, I'll go you one better. Why not have the mother die? Or maybe have the sister die? Have nobody die. How about Or that? have nobody die. But That's I get what the you're way saying. I if, if, if your idea is somebody has to die, the dad is always the crutch that everyone goes to. Have it be someone else. Right. The way I look at it is if everybody dies, and you know, if, if every movie has a loved one that dies, then no movie has a loved one that dies. Because it's, it's old hat. Touche. But last thing, this is where this movie needs to go from here. They need to bring in Booster Gold. I'm not going to get into who's going to play him. That's a whole other kettle of fish in the Discord. Bring him in, and then he jumps from time, and we get all different. We get Dan Garrett in the 40s and 50s doing his adventures, tell, tell them like old radio or movie serials. Then you get Ted in the 80s being Blue Beetle. Um, and he's like doing all that like toggle switch, 80s technology, you know, Miami Vice, any other stereotype. And they're there. Even if you want to do this as a Blue Beetle TV show, all a pay, uh, Peacemaker. I was going to say Pacemaker because I'm thinking of the father. <laughs> but 
Peacemaker, I would be down with a Blue Beetle Eras TV show. Okay. I want that in the worst way. I could see it happening. Why not? Let's go yep. crazy. Let's put us in charge of that, Joe. All right. I'll I'll uh, ping Jimmy Pistol when we're done here. All right. Cool beans. I think that might be... I got it all out, Joe. Okay. I got it all out. And again, I liked it, but I, I feel as though I have a lot of the same nitpicks with a lot of these movies, and a lot of it just comes to the language, and it's because I'm an old man, it's because I'm a father, mm-hmm. and I think if I wasn't a father, I wouldn't care as much about the language, but right. like I got... like Even my kid who doesn't... like. He wasn't feeling up to it, so he didn't go, but I think he would have enjoyed it. But I think if, like, my little niece and nephew, who are seven and four, like, some of that might have been a little too intense for them, and they love Spider-Man. And I so think you, they could have loved Blue Beetle if it wasn't, like, a little, like, that little body horror scene and so much swearing. I got you. So did April go see it with you at all or no? No, because obviously okay. if, 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 if... Ace if, wasn't feeling good. That's what I figured, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joe, you know what I'll say? And the last thing I'll say on this is, I think if you saw the movie completely alone, like me, you would have loved it much better. But I would have had, an, I would have had seven less dollars in my pocket, so... Worth I, it. Every I would, time. I would have bought a third hot dog. How about that? There you go. I'll I'll buy I'll buy the hot dog next. Time. All right, next time, next time. But I say go see Blue Beetle. Um, I say so too. Yeah, you know, th- if we're talking five stars, it's like three and a half. I would say, um, you know, definitely worth your time. And you know, it's it, it's a it, it's a spot of optimism and hope for what the future of the DC uh, cinematic universe stuff could be. Four, four and a quarter stars for me out of five. Okay. And if Blue Beetle was in the Tokyo Dome, it would have been six and a quarter. There you go. No roll-ups, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So, hey, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to have Ashka to talk about next week. Oh, Two episodes this week. Right. Um. So we'll have those two to talk about. Uh, it's, am I, I'm, I, I'm, I always mispronounce the show, but it's the new Star Wars Disney Plus show, right? Right, it's the Oshkosh by Gosh show. Yes. Uh, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Rosario Dawson's in it. You know, uh, apparently it ties very heavily into the Clone Wars cartoon, which I never watched. I hear uh, rumors it, it you can get by without it. So I have, I, I have hope and feeling uh, that we'll be able to get through it without being too, too bogged down and not having all that knowledge in our heads, you know? Right, right. All right. So, hey, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This was episode 672 of Longbox Heroes. For Todd, this is Joe saying we'll see you all here next week. Remember, be a faucet, not a drain.
You're listening to the soon-to-be-named network, the Lamborghini of Podcast Networks. The Rob is a long box hero. The Rob is a long box hero. He gives us five five stars.